This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you have made. What a great day it is. Any day that we are alive is a great day. We give you thanks just for the gift of life itself. What a precious gift it is. And thank you for this park. Thank you for this uh, sunshine. Thank you that we can be here. We ask that you would guide and direct uh, all that we say and do, that it be to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our second reading of scripture is um, from Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Now again, we're uh, reading from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this scripture. Speak to us now, we ask. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our sermon series this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, a series that we have been calling Making the Good Life Real. We have given this series of messages, I can keep this on, we, can get, we have given this series of messages this particular title because Matthew 5 through 7, in these verses, Jesus gives us his description, his vision, his take on what the good life really looks like. Two weeks ago, Tyler looked at the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, which are sayings that Jesus summarizes for us, some sayings that Jesus gives that summarizes for us some of the qualities that Jesus looks for in our lives, qualities like humility and compassion and mercy and justice, pure of heart peacemaking, qualities that describe something of the character we are to demonstrate as followers of Jesus. And then last Sunday, Jim Singleton talked about the kind of influence we are to have as Christians in our world, an influence that Jesus describes as being like salt and light. Jesus says that you and I are to be his salty followers, God's flavoring, God's seasoning in our church, in our community, in our society, wherever God places us. We are to shine, we are to reflect Christ's light wherever we may go and whatever we may do. Now this morning, Jesus talks about the kind of righteousness that he wants to see in his followers. A righteousness that is both outward and inward and that starts in the heart. 
And so I want to take a few moments to look at those now. First of all, these verses. First of all, Jesus says that real righteousness, genuine righteous living, is grounded in God's truth as it is given to us in the scriptures. And in this case, specifically, he says the law and the prophets. Now, what exactly is this law or the prophets that Jesus refers to? Well, we can say a lot about it, but in a nutshell, when Jesus talks about the law and or the prophets, what he's really referring to is what we call the Old Testament. The moral precepts and principles and values and ethics and theological truths that are contained in the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus says. He says, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, not to abolish what's in the Old Testament, but to fulfill them, verse 17. This word translated fulfill here literally means to give something its full meaning. Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, Jesus emphasizes this, I think, because there were some religious leaders around during his day that he interacted with who had gotten the mistaken idea from some of the things Jesus said and some of the actions that he did that his goal was to modify or, rectify, modify or even get rid of the law and the prophets, the moral and ethical truths that we find in the Old Testament. Some of them thought that's what his agenda might be. But Jesus assures them, him, assures them here very well, very specifically, that that's not the case. He says his goal is not to do away with the moral absolutes and truths that have been taught before, that are contained in the Old Testament, but to expand them, to bring out the fuller and deeper meaning of what those truths are and how we are to use them and live them in the kingdom of God. And of course, there is no better summary of those truths, no better summary of the law and the prophets than the Ten Commandments that we read just a few moments ago. The Ten Commandments reveal to us the eternal mind of God on a number of very significant issues that are as relevant for us today as they were when they were originally given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, I won't ask you to close your Bible, if you brought a Bible, and name the Ten Commandments by memory, even though you just heard them read. It's amazing how many people, even Christians, do not know or always follow these fundamental guidelines of kingdom living. There was a, toll taken, a poll taken some time ago by the Kelton Research that I ran across recently that discovered that Americans can more easily recall, recall all seven ingredients in a Big Mac than they can recall the Ten Commandments. They found, the survey found that 80% of the respondents could name the hamburger's primary ingredients. I bet some of you are older, remember them as well. In fact, you could probably repeat after me. Let's see if we can say it together. It is two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, right? <laughs> you ever heard that? Is that there in your mind somewhere? Yeah, it is. It's in there. Interestingly enough, less than six in ten people, 60% knew the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Less than half of the respondents in this survey, so I'm falling apart here, um, could recall the, my sideburns are falling off, 
could recall the commandment, honor your father and your mother. Only 34% knew remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, another Gallup poll had found out, I think it was a Gallup poll maybe even earlier than this, that most Americans couldn't name three out of 10 of the commandments. So the survey concluded this, apparently Americans know their Big Macs, but they're shaky when it comes to the Ten Commandments. But here is the point. How can we even begin to live the righteous kind of holy life that Jesus calls us to, as, sum and as summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, if we don't even know the Ten Commandments, or we can't remember them, or we don't even seek to follow them? Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, and again, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments, but I think that's what he kind of has in mind, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I was working on this the last couple of weeks, his language reminded me here of how important it is that we not only live these commandments ourselves as best we can with God's help, but also teach and model them to others. Some of you know that Debbie and I just returned Friday night from Alexandria, Virginia, where we spent the last two weeks with my daughter and son-in-law and their th three children. Um, and it's the first time that we've seen them in person in 15 months. Some of you are in, have been in some of the same boat. You know, it's been a while since you've seen people because of the pandemic. But while we were with our grandchildren for this intensive two-week period, I couldn't help but think of these verses where Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I thought of these verses because I realized that our grandchildren are like sponges. You know, they're four and two and one month old. And we realize that you have to be really careful what you say and do around them because they pick up everything they see and hear, both good and bad. Uh, our granddaughter Hannah who is just two years old, would often repeat exactly what Debbie and I just said to her. Sometimes she'd add it as a question, repeat it verbatim. And we were on a walk one day in the stroller on the street, and, it, and I, I said to Debbie, I said, you know, we really need to watch what we say. We need to watch our language and make sure nothing inappropriately, inadvertently slips out when they're in our presence. Not that that would ever happen to Kim, of course, but just theoretically, <laughs> if that would happen. Because what would happen? Hannah would grab it, she'd pick it up, and she'd go home and she'd repeat it to her mom and dad. And they'd be saying, where did she hear that word? <laughs> Hannah's been sequestered in our house all this time, and she's only been with you. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen. Oof. You know how that works. But we again were reminded of how important our influence is as grandparents on our grandkids, especially when it comes to modeling and living out a righteous life, a Ten Commandment life. Jesus says we have a responsibility not only to live the law and the prophets, the commandments ourselves, but to teach them and model them to others 
and especially to the next generation. And I mention this because apparently many of us today are not doing a very good job, or as good a job as we could, passing on our faith to our children and our grandchildren. You probably saw the Gallup poll that just came out in the last two or three weeks that reported that church membership in the United States has dropped below 50% of the population for the first time in the 80 years that Gallup has been doing this survey on people's religious practices. In 1999, for instance, 70% of Americans told Gallup that they were members of a church or a synagogue or a mosque. They were religious. Now only 47% do, which is a 20% drop in just 20 years. Now it still might sound fairly high, and for a lot of the world it would be high, but it's a precipitous drop. Gallup in this poll suggested that maybe one reason for this decline in the growing number of Americans that express no, is the growing number of Americans that express no religious uh, preference. And as you might guess, the generations that most identify themselves as having no religious preference are the younger generation, those who are 40 and younger. And it seems that the younger you are, the less likely you are to be a follower of Jesus. This is a serious thing, folks, that we need to be paying attention to. Uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, uh, quite precipitous, the drop in people who now say they are nuns, not nuns with habits, Catholic Church, but nuns have no religion, no preference at all. That number keeps growing all the time, and especially it's growing among the younger generations. Decline in church attendance, uh, Gallup said, is just one indicator that faith in Jesus appears to be waning, especially among young people. So here's the point. The point is parents, grandparents, godparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, whatever it might be, all of us, if we fall into any of those categories, have an obligation, a responsibility, and really the opportunity to influence for Christ these young people, ethically, morally, and spiritually. Jim Singleton mentioned this a little bit last week in his sermon, you know, the influence of mothers and others on a younger generation, and we have to do the same. Let me tell you one story. I love the story of uh, Catherine uh, Koop, who was one of the Americans who was held hostage in Iran in the late 1770s. Remember the Iran hostage crisis, those of you who are older? Um, and of course, Iran has been in the news again today, and as Sarah said earlier, the church is really growing in Iran. Uh, but during the 1970s, in this hostage crisis, Catherine Koop spent 444 days isolated in a tiny bedroom with, no cur with just curtains and just by herself. She was in solitude. And she said in her solitude, while she was in that terrible situation, she says the memories of her faith, the hymns, the psalms, the stories of the Bible, especially from the Old Testament, helped her tremendously, she said, get through that hostage ordeal. She said this, she said, I realized that I was given a vast treasure of worship and devotional material from my earliest childhood days. And I'm so grateful for it. She said, our captivity was long and difficult, but I found my days filled with the spirit and power of God. Those 444 days became 
a time of spiritual growth, interestingly enough, spiritual growth, because, and here's what she says, because I have had a lifetime of preparation for what I faced in Tehran, a lifetime of preparation. And she goes on to say this, from the first time my hands were folded and I was taught to say amen by my parents, I was guided by them and by my grandparents, godparents, and fellow members of the family of Christians. She says, the faith they had shared with me by God's grace sustained me when the mobs in the street were shouting, death, death. And she concludes by saying this. She says, because I, what I had been given, I knew I was safe in the love of the Lord. I was with a cohort yesterday, a cohort of pastors, and we were talking and I don't even know why it came up, but one, one guy said that he had a professor in seminary in, in a particular class, I forget what the class was, and he said the only thing he remembered is one thing that the professor said, maybe even offhand. He said, and this is what he said, I wrote it down, he said, this professor said, the gospel is for the children of the church first. That was the only thing he remembered from that class. And I got to thinking, Maybe that's kind of what Jesus is saying too. Um, and that's an area we have to really pay attention to. Jesus says, those who pay attention to and teach and model God's kingdom's truth, God's kingdom holiness, God's kingdom values, God's kingdom righteousness to others will be called great in the kingdom of God. But those who don't, won't. I think the question each of us needs to ask ourselves this morning is simply this. How intentionally am I living and modeling and serving as an example of God's kingdom to others? And especially to the young people in my life. I know that's a question I really found myself asking a lot in the last couple of weeks. Because I haven't been around kids much or younger people much, especially in the last year. but was really made aware of it. How intentionally am I living out those kingdom values, those Ten Commandment values, the righteousness that Jesus asks us to live? Secondly, Jesus says that this real righteousness, this genuine godly living he calls us to, as summarized for us conveniently in the Ten Commandments, and, and Jesus is going to... Uh, um, um, explain for us what he means by righteousness as we go through the, 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 the uh, Sermon on the Mount, because he's going to give examples of what this righteousness looks like. Um, but he says this real righteousness must surpass or exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in verse 20. Now, if you know anything about the scribes and Pharisees who were the major religious leaders of Jesus' day, you know that they prided themselves on being pretty righteous people. How could Jesus' disciples possibly demonstrate righteousness greater than them? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. Jesus really isn't asking that much here. Many of these religious leaders of Jesus' day tended to have a very limited and narrow understanding of what it meant to be righteous. They tended to reduce the great ethical and moral truths of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, into minute details and rules and regulations 
that they followed to the T and they wanted everybody else to follow to the T. And so by the time Jesus comes along, righteousness was very often narrowly defined by how carefully and how diligently one kept, one outwardly kept certain rules and regulations. It was all about what you did outwardly. And ironically, these religious leaders themselves often did not practice the very things they said that they wanted the people to practice. But worst of all, the righteousness they tended to practice was more often for show than for anything else. And we know this. I'm not just making this up. We know this because when we get to chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say to his listeners that the religious leaders of his day often practiced their piety, things like giving alms to the poor or um, praying in public or fasting, things like that. He says, he says they often practiced their piety more for show to be seen by others than anything else. And he warns them against a piety that is more show than substance. As I was working on this, I thought of that movie, The Greatest Showman. Anybody seen The Greatest Showman? I know some members of our family think it's you know, one of the best movies. They got all of the, the music memorized. There's some great music in it. But I thought of The great, Greatest Showman, and, and as you know, it's a somewhat fact-based story of the life of B.T. Barnum. Not entirely, but somewhat. He did grow up in the 1800s, early 1800s, and at a young age, he demonstrated a knack for publicity and for promotion. And after trying various jobs, he eventually turned to show business. And actually, that was later on in his life when that happened. And he used his limitless imagination uh, in 1870 to create what he called the greatest show on earth. Greatest show on earth. And I'm sure all of us have been to a circus. Um, but this is what he said at the time when he created that. He said, it will be the largest group of wonders ever known. My great desire is to totally eclipse all other exhibitions like it in the world. And on April 10th, 1871, P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Circus opened for the first time in Brooklyn. For P.T. Barnum, Really, it was all about the show, about having a good show. Jesus says that many of the religious leaders of, of his day, for many of them, it's all about the show. Jesus says, as well-intentioned as the scribes and Pharisees may be, real righteousness before God is much more than simply going through the outward motions so others will be impressed. There's nothing wrong with outward motions, certainly, and expressing but he says, real righteousness is much more than that. More than just being about the show. Real righteousness before God, Jesus says, starts internally in the heart. With one's attitude, with one's character, with one's motivations. Jesus makes this clear later on in this gospel, where he takes these same religious leaders to task for being concerned about impressing others, but in neglecting the more important things like compassion and honesty and integrity and love and justice, things that were priorities for Jesus. 
In Matthew 15, 8, a little bit later in Matthew's Gospel, quoting from Isaiah, Jesus says this. He says, This people honor me, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And later on in Matthew 23, Jesus calls these religious leaders whitewashed tombs. He says, uh, you look great on the outside, but in the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. Those are pretty strong words from Jesus. And what I think Jesus is saying here is simply this. The righteousness that is real, that is most pleasing to God, must be a righteousness that reflects Jesus' values, Jesus' priorities. A righteousness that comes from an honest and sincere desire and longing to love others and to seek justice and to serve God and to do his will. <clears throat> Outward conformity to the law is fine, is good, but it's not enough. It must also come, Jesus says, from the heart. And the scripture tells us that it is Jesus himself who makes that change of heart within us possible. It is Jesus himself living in us through his spirit who forms within us the real righteousness we need to enter his kingdom. And that righteousness begins when we put our faith and our trust in him. Jesus says that the Pharisees, or Jesus says that the righteousness we are to have that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees is something that begins, first of all, on the inside. That comes from he himself dwelling within our hearts through his spirit. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 says this, he says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Listen to this. He says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that in the final analysis, the only way we can have this kind of righteousness that Jesus talks about is not by anything we do, although what we do is important, but by a change of heart that comes from believing in him and having a growing relationship with him. Have you experienced that kind of righteousness in your heart and in your life from Christ dwelling in you? Have you given your life over to him? And are you seeking with the help of his spirit to actively live as citizens of his kingdom? Jesus says that is what is necessary if we want a righteousness that is real. Let's bow quickly for prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of love and mercy and grace. <clears throat> you call us to live in certain ways that are not only good and pleasing to you, but that are good for us and are good for others, good for our society, good for our world. But we admit that we often struggle and fail, even with our best intentions, which is why we need you helping us, holding us, living inside of us so that we can be all you call us to be. And so we ask for that today, that the righteousness that is real would shine forth in our lives, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well, to all that we encounter, to everyone we come in contact with. 
And so, Lord Jesus, come and help us do that. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.